Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Blessed is our God at all times, now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. O Christ our God, you are transfigured on the mountain, showing your disciples as much of your glory as they could hold. Let your eternal light, O Lord, shine also upon us sinners through the prayers of the Mother of God, O Savior, save us. Amen. Please welcome back Dr. Bracey Versnack. Thanks, Monica. Thank you. So um, last week, just to kind of recap, especially because I know there are a few people um, here uh, tonight who weren't here last week. Last week we saw that the conflict between the Catholic Church and communism began primarily as a, a theoretical uh, conflict, a conflict that took place on the level of ideas. Uh, but eventually it became quite uh, practical, especially by uh, World War II. So by uh, World War II, the Soviet Union was actively spying on the Holy See uh, and uh, wrongly uh, assumed that the Vatican was trying to do uh, the same against it. And then after the war, uh, the Soviets established uh, satellite governments in Eastern Europe in several countries with large Catholic uh, populations. And even though I'm going to uh, focus primarily on uh, Eastern Europe and in particular today on uh, Poland, it's important to remember that the struggle between uh, the church and communism was a global struggle. It took place uh, in Eastern Europe, it took place in uh, Southeast Asia, and also in uh, Latin America. And communism expanded throughout the world in the post-World War II uh, era in Eastern Europe, as I mentioned. Uh, but then in uh, 1949, uh, mainland China fell to communism. Cuba went communist a decade later. And then in subsequent decades, uh, in Southeast Asia, you have Vietnam and Cambodia being taken over by communist governments, and uh, in Central Asia, Afghanistan. The Soviets also supported Marxist movements in uh, Latin America and Africa, too. So communism was global in its scope and a global threat to the church. And this really sharpened the conflict between the church and communism uh, considerably in the post-war years. In Eastern Europe in the late 1940s, communists confiscated uh, church property and established associations of uh, progressive priests uh, who were friendly to their uh, regimes. They cracked down on uh, Eastern Rite churches, which were in communion with Rome, uh, attempted to forcibly dissolve them and compel their members to uh, join their respective national uh, Orthodox, capital O, churches. And by 1955, 15,000 priests and religious were imprisoned in Eastern Europe alone. 
And all these acts were condemned by uh, Pius XII uh, in several encyclicals in the late 1940s and uh, early 1950s. Now, when they took over these countries in Eastern Europe, the communists tried to undermine the moral authority of the church uh, by falsely accusing the bishops of the local church of collaborating with the Nazis. Uh, then they would arrest them, put them on show trials, and imprison them. And these same kind of uh, propaganda methods were then used later on in the early 1960s uh, to, uh, in an attempt to discredit uh, Pius XII. Now, the most notorious example of a, uh, the primate of a local church uh, who was imprisoned is that of Josef Cardinal Mincenti of Hungary. Mincenti was uh, tortured into confessing that he was plotting to overthrow the communist government of uh, Hungary and uh, place Otto von Habsburg on the throne as uh, king of Hungary. Uh, but before he was arrested, he, he basically said, uh, anything, you know, these guys are going to arrest me and they're going to torture me, so anything that I, I confess to will be because it was tortured uh, out of me. And he, he did break, and in his trial, he actually uh, confessed that he had, again, engaged in this plot to, uh, to put uh, Otto von Habsburg on the, um, the throne in Hungary. But during the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, uh, Mincenti was released from prison and found refuge in the American Embassy. And he remained there for uh, 15 years. Now, in the mid-50s, this, uh, this was okay. But by the late 1960s, uh, it became politically awkward for uh, the United States and for the Holy See uh, because uh, both the US and uh, the Holy See were engaged in their own uh, kind of policies of uh, detente, right? The, the Vatican version of detente is called uh, Ostpolitik. Uh, and so the, the idea was, uh, in, in both cases, that if you uh, sort of go soft rhetorically on communism and make other concessions, then hopefully the communists uh, will give concessions in uh, return. And so John the 23rd and and Paul VI hoped that this would give the church uh, greater breathing room in uh, communist countries. And so uh, Mincenti then, who again was an unrepentant uh, anti-communist, was finally allowed to, uh, to leave the American embassy in Hungary in uh, 1971. So by the late 1960s, Western leaders believed that they had to come to terms with communism because uh, by this time it seemed likely to uh, stay. There was also, of course, uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, fear that um, you know, confrontation with the Soviets might culminate in uh, nuclear war. And even though communism appeared to have staying power uh, at that point, uh, the staying power that it had was really uh, only based on the uh, use of brute coercive force. Communist countries literally had to prevent, physically prevent people from leaving. 
which is why they brought down uh, the Iron Curtain over Eastern Europe and again literally sealed off uh, East Berlin from, uh, or I should say rather West Berlin, right? Uh, West Berlin during the Cold War is of course the uh, British, American, and French zone of occupation in um, in Germany and basically until 1960 you, it was relatively easy if you lived in in East Germany they'd already sealed off the border with West Germany by that point Be, again because tens of thousands of people simply fled from the Soviet zone of occupation into uh, the West but um, by 1960 you could still get from uh, East Berlin into uh, West Berlin and so they they literally sealed the whole thing off as I suppose everyone here knows uh, so, so there was no way to uh, get over and of course um, they used barbed wire and uh, had uh, uh, guard towers and guards were permitted to shoot people who tried to escape over the border. Uh, because if they, if they hadn't done that, people would have fled and many of them uh, still managed to succeed. So in spite of this, there were uprisings, major uprisings against communism in Hungary in uh, 1956 and in uh, Czechoslovakia in uh, 1968. And both of these insurrections were put down forcibly by uh, Soviet troops. This led to uh, what was known as the uh, Brezhnev uh, Doctrine named after the Soviet premier Leonid uh, Brezhnev. And this doctrine uh, stipulated that uh, the Soviet Union had the uh, power and would use force to uh, prevent any existing communist country from uh, ceasing to be communist. So after World War II uh, then in Eastern Europe, the Soviets uh, held rigged elections, which they won with overwhelming, as in 90% plus uh, uh, majorities, and set up uh, puppet governments with uh, intelligence services that were uh, directed uh, toward controlling their own civilian uh, populations. Now, this is an, an extremely broad topic because, as I said, it's a, uh, it's a global struggle. So, so what I want to do uh, tonight is focus on uh, Poland because uh, by looking at one country you can get, kind of get a, uh, a better grip on the nature of this problem and then of course it's useful to focus on uh, Poland because uh, the beginning of the end of the Cold War uh, takes place in uh, Poland. Now Poland's first encounter with uh, communism uh, came during the uh, Russian Civil War, right after uh, Polish independence, after World War I. So Poland uh, basically is wiped off the map by Russia, Prussia, and Austria in a series of wars in the late 1700s. Uh, then they become independent uh, for the first time since the late 1700s in uh, 1919. And right off the bat, they have to defend themselves uh, against the Soviets who want to not just uh, spread the communist revolution to the newly independent Poland, but also reclaim territory that had belonged to the uh, Russian Empire. Uh, so this war uh, ends in a Polish victory. The Poles defeat the Soviets uh, in the Battle of 
uh, Warsaw, and that secures Polish independence until uh, 1939. So they have basically 20 years of meaningful in independence until um, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union come to an agreement to uh, mutually invade Poland and divide it uh, between them. So the Germans invaded first, uh, triggering uh, World War II as Britain and France uh, declared war. Uh, and then the Soviets uh, invaded Poland uh, two weeks later, although obviously Britain and France did not uh, declare war on the Soviet Union. Now during the, the period of Soviet occupation of uh, Poland in the first uh, year or two of the war, so 1939, uh, 1940, before uh, Hitler decides to turn on Stalin and then launches invasion of the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, in that brief period of Soviet uh, occupation early in the war, the Soviets executed uh, 22,000 members of the Polish elite, so military officers, uh, the intelligentsia, and priests in a place called the Katyn Forest in the spring of uh, 1940. And it's one of the, uh, the ironies that later on then when the Nazis sweep through uh, Poland as they're invading the Soviet Union, they find this mass grave and dig it up and they, ta they take film of it and broadcast it to the world thinking that they're gonna score a great propaganda victory against the Soviets, but nobody believes them because it's the Nazis, right? And so you can, the, obviously Poles know that it's the Soviets, but because it's the Nazis who actually discover this and broadcast it to the world, the communists are able to kind of muddy the waters and it's not until I think the 1980s or 90s that the Soviets officially uh, admit that they uh, did this. And during World War II, somewhere between now, well, during the war, somewhere between 5.6 and 5.8 million Poles, that is Polish citizens, uh, were killed. The vast majority of them by the Nazis. So only about uh, 150,000 of these uh, people are killed by the Soviets. If you do the math though, that is uh, 2,800 people being killed uh, a day, every day, for a period of almost six years. So massive slaughter is taking uh, place in Poland. And uh, about three million of these uh, Poles are uh, Jews, the rest of them are Gentiles, mostly Catholics, of course. Uh, and then that doesn't even include, that is at 5.6 or 5.8 million, doesn't even include another uh, two million people from other countries, again, overwhelmingly uh, Jews who were collected in Western Europe and other places and then brought to uh, Poland uh, to be killed on uh, Polish soil. So if you add that uh, two million, then you're looking at 7.6 or 7.8 million people uh, killed on Polish soil uh, during uh, World War II. Now, while this is all uh, going on, there was an underground force called the Polish Home Army uh, organizing armed resistance against the Nazis. 
uh, they had basically about, at the height, of about 400,000 uh, men. And uh, their most famous operation was the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of uh, 1944. And so what happens is the, you know, the Soviets are kind of slowly pushing the Germans back through Eastern Europe uh, late in the war. And the home army and people in the Jewish ghetto of Warsaw decide this is a great opportunity to rise up and push the, uh, against the Nazis and try and uh, push them out because they're weak. And they think that the Soviets are going to come in and help them out, and everything's going to be uh, just fine. Uh, but that's not what happens, because uh, Stalin uh, doesn't want the uh, Jewish ghetto of uh, Warsaw around much more than Hitler does. And he definitely does not want the Polish uh, home army around uh, after the war, because he's already you know, got things figured out for, uh, for the post-war uh, Poland that he, he wants to establish. And so the Soviet army actually halts uh, outside of Warsaw, and they allow the Nazis to liquidate the Warsaw ghetto uh, before they then finally uh, roll in themselves. And there's actually a, um, a film that came out several years ago now called The Pianist, uh, starring Adrian Brody, which uh, is set in this. And I think it, it really, I think, evokes the, uh, what's going on at that time um, uh, very well. And the Polish Home Army then is officially disbanded uh, after the war, but there were actually units uh, which continued to uh, fight against the Soviets. And one of the things that happens in the late 40s and early 50s is that the CIA actually tries to, there's this, uh, what turns out to be a very naively optimistic idea that you can support these kind of anti-communist movements behind the Iron Curtain and, and maybe undermine uh, communism in the late 40s and early 50s, uh, but it doesn't work out. They're basically uh, destroyed by the uh, communists. Now, before World War II, uh, Poland had uh, substantial German, Ukrainian, and uh, Polish minorities. Uh, but after the war, between the Nazi murder of the Jews, the Soviet annexation of the Ukrainian parts of pre-war Poland, uh, and the expulsion of the Germans, uh, Poland became over 90% ethnically Polish and uh, Roman Catholic. Okay, so the, the country, basically because of ethnic cleansing, emerges from World War II uh, as a more uh, homogeneously Catholic country than it had been uh, before. And that was actually uh, providential because it's, it put the church in a much stronger position than vis-a-vis uh, the communists. The church represented the Polish nation in the eyes of the people, even in the eyes of many uh, non-believers. And uh, that made it uh, that much more difficult for the communists to, uh, to control the church in Poland. So the communists uh, did go about creating uh, you know, organizations of progressive or left-wing uh, priests in an attempt to undermine uh, the bishops, as they did in other countries. 
uh, they try to uh, cultivate uh, sympathizers uh, among uh, the clergy uh, more broadly. Although, of course, what happens if the you know if your parishioners know that you're close with the local local commissar, it, you know, doesn't necessarily make you very popular. Um, and they tried to infiltrate then uh, spies into the clergy in uh, Poland as well. And Poles opposed to the regime then were arrested by the thousands and locked up. And it's um, what happened to the, the primate of uh, Poland, Cardinal, uh, I believe it's pronounced Wyszynski, um, was not quite as bad as what happened to uh, Mincenti, but he was uh, arrested and imprisoned for a time and then uh, released after uh, speaking out against communism in the 1950s. Okay, but because the church was so strong in Poland and because they had good leaders, uh, the communists had to proceed more carefully than they did uh, elsewhere. So for example, they allowed uh, religious instruction in public schools, even though they tried to uh, limit it. Uh, and then the, the church also had enough freedom of maneuver to kind of try and supplement uh, Catholic education uh, outside of uh, public schools. Religious processions uh, were permitted. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, 100,000 people could still go on pilgrimage to Our Lady of Czestochowa uh, in Poland uh, every year. Uh, other forms of Catholic associations were permitted and uh, there was even a Catholic press. Uh, they preserved the military ordinary, so there were uh, Catholic chaplains in the Polish uh, military. And uh, religious orders were permitted to function uh, too. So, so there was uh, a certain amount of freedom that the church had in Poland that was uh, that was greater than the church had in other communist countries, simply, again, because of the fact that over 90% of the, of the people are ethnically Polish and Roman Catholic. And there were lots of people, too, who, uh, who worked for the regime or were even officially members of the Communist Party who still went to mass on Sunday and, and saw that their kids were uh, instructed in the faith and so on. And th this is... It's, uh, it's strange, it's very counterintuitive to think of it, but there was it that these people were serious enough about their faith that there was a serious tension between their loyalties to the church and the, uh, the regime. The other thing is many of the Polish communists were also nationalists and ardent uh, Polish patriots too, which is another thing that would kind of uh, divide their, their loyalty against um, uh, communism and against the, uh, the Soviet Union. So in spite of this, though, uh, communists in Poland pressed the church as uh, hard as they could, and periodically persecution became quite serious. So anti-communist priests uh, were frequently harassed and even jailed, and the communists tried to uh, interfere with Episcopal appointments. And they claimed, so the, the ancient Pol Polish kings had, uh, had the right conceded to them by the popes to have some say in the selection of, of bishops. And so the Polish communist government then claimed to, uh, in, in that regard, inherit the rights of uh, the Polish kings and tried to meddle in Episcopal appointments. And in 1958, 
the auxiliary bishopric of uh, Krakow uh, comes vacant, and Pius XII nominates uh, six candidates who are rejected uh, by the regime until he nominates a uh, priest who uh, teaches philosophy and uh, is engaged in youth ministry, and so they must thought this guy must have thought this guy was going to be harmless. And of course, as you know, it's Karawatiya, right? So <laughs> it ends up uh, not working out so well uh, for them. So he, uh, just to, to set this up for later, so he becomes auxiliary bishop then in 1958. Uh, he becomes archbishop in 1964 and then is made a cardinal by uh, Paul VI in uh, 1968. Now, after the war, the communist government uh, decided that as part of their ideological struggle against uh, Catholicism in uh, Poland, they would build a kind of ideal uh, communist factory town near uh, Krakow, which is the, uh, the, the capital of the ancient uh, Polish kingdom and in many ways the cultural capital. Of, uh, of Poland. And if you've ever been, I, I, if you haven't been, I highly recommend going to Krakow. It's a, just a wonderfully beautiful uh, city. And, uh, and the, so the idea is that here you have this, uh, this you know, architecturally still medieval in many ways uh, town in which the church is uh, very strong. It's you know, fairly prosperous. Uh, and so that what they decided to do was build, again, a kind of co ideal communist factory town uh, right next to it to show what a true communist uh, town uh, would be like. And this was called uh, Nova Huta. And the idea then was that Nova Huta would be uh, not just uh, you know, a factory town, but a town without God. Uh, so they, they were not going to allow uh, the construction of a church in Nova Huta to show that the people uh, didn't need uh, God, that, you know, that, that God didn't exist, that the people didn't need God, and that they didn't need their uh, priests. Um, although, because it's, it's Poland, what, what happens is the, the guys who come up with the plans actually are, are Catholic, and so they secretly, uh, they ha they, there's a secret plan that, okay, well, someday we're going to build a church here, so here's where it'll go, you know, and, and so on. Uh, so this is, this is the kind of thing that happens to kind of constantly undercut uh, communism in Poland, is that, is that even the guys who are charged with laying out this kind of uh, utopian uh, communist city are, are at least attached enough to the church that, that they think, okay, well, we've got to have some kind of plan in the, in the drawer, basically, for the time when a church ends up getting built here. And uh, so there's this back and forth process between the church and the regime, uh, basically kind of struggling over whether or not uh, a church will be constructed in the uh, town. So they, people keep applying for permits and they get uh, denied. And at, at one point they erect a, a huge cross on the uh, site where they want this thing to be uh, built and the regime takes it down and it causes a riot, and they have to bring in riot uh, police to, um, to put this down. And it's a, it's a big ideological defeat for the regime because 
this population of, of this town, Nova Huda, is basically overwhelmingly uh, young males who are working in factories. So this is the industrial proletariat who are supposed to be, you know, ideologically uh, simpatico with the regime. They're living in uh, apartment complexes that were built for them uh, by the regime and so on. And yet it turns out that they uh, want a Catholic church uh, and access to the sacraments as much as uh, anyone. So finally, a popular demand for uh, a parish church becomes uh, too much, uh, and uh, the regime allows, uh, approves the application in the late 1960s, and then the church is finally uh, completed and consecrated by Cardinal Wotia in uh, 1977, just the year before he uh, became pope. So the poles would not be separated from the church no matter how hard the uh, communists tried. Now, throughout the period of communist domination, Poland, like other communist countries, suffered from serious uh, economic uh, crises, especially in the uh, 1970s. And uh, so in the 70s, the prices of uh, thing, you know, consumer goods and even uh, food are constantly uh, going up. And the thing, the, you know, the problem for the communists is that this is a command economy, right? The, 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 the state controls the whole economy. And so there's no one to blame uh, when you control the whole economy and there are food shortages so that people can't get uh, enough meat and, uh, you know, again, paper towels and, and things like this. Uh, and so there are all kinds of uh, popular protests in the 70s then against just these kind of bread and butter uh, econo you know, economic uh, crises, right, um, that really weakens uh, the regime. And sometimes these uh, protests uh, turn into riots and they, they have to be put down uh, by uh, force. Uh, so again, what, it turns out that uh, the, that the the idea that people in a communist regime will work harder because they get supposedly get to, to keep the fruits of their labor turns out to be completely and utterly false. They don't get to keep the uh, fruits of their labor. They're, they don't have the, in, the incentive to uh, work as hard, and it's an economic failure. And the other thing is by the late uh, 70s and early 80s, they're actually importing uh, foodstuffs from the United States. So even though, um, on, on the one hand, you have these kind of uh, internal problems in the Soviet Empire and Eastern Europe, uh, internationally, uh, uh, externally, things uh, look pretty good for uh, the Soviet Union in, in the late uh, 1970s. Uh, so communism seems to be spreading in uh, Asia, Africa, and uh, Latin America. The Soviet armed forces seem as strong as uh, ever. They, you know, oil was expensive in the 70s. The Russian economy is basically an oil economy, so they, uh, you know, do better than they otherwise uh, would have uh, in those circumstances. And so, there's no. Uh, and again, date. You know, the, the West has kind of been duped into uh, 
thinking that communism is never going to go away, or even worse, that there's some kind of moral equivalence between uh, communism and capitalism. Uh, Jimmy Carter gives uh, a speech at Notre Dame in 1977, I believe it is, saying that it's a, it's a good thing that the West has lost its inordinate fear of uh, communism, right? Because we're not going to do crazy things that are going to cause us to have uh, fight another Vietnam or, or have a nuclear war uh, or, uh, or whatever. Uh, then three things happen in the late 1970s and early 1980s that, um, that change all this. Uh, not, and, and I'll list them not really in, in, his, in order, uh, the, but the Soviets invade Afghanistan in 1979. There's a Marxist regime uh, there that gets into uh, trouble. And again, the Brezhnev Doctrine uh, that I mentioned before, named after Leonid Brezhnev, says that once a communist country, always a communist country. So the Soviets are willing to send in troops to, um, to, uh, to keep Afghanistan uh, communist, and they'll end up being entangled there for uh, a decade. Uh, another thing that happens is that Ronald Reagan is elected uh, president in 1980. Uh, Reagan was a true believing anti-communist uh, going back to the uh, 1940s, and so he is uh, absolutely the most anti-communist president that we had in the Cold War and is really serious about doing what he can to uh, try to uh, undermine the uh, Soviet Union. And he actually picks um, a devout Catholic as his uh, head of the CIA, William Casey, uh, who was an old uh, OSS man back in uh, World War II. And Casey ends up making several visits, actually, to um, the Holy See to visit with John Paul II when they're collaborating in the 1980s, uh, trying to uh, weaken the Soviet Union and, uh, and, and especially communism in uh, Poland. And then most importantly for our purposes, uh, in 1978, Pope Paul VI uh, dies. Uh, this marks the end of the uh, basically Vatican detente or uh, Ostpolitik. Uh, he's succeeded, of course, by John Paul I, who only lasts about a month. And then uh, in, the, in the second uh, conclave, uh, Karawutia is elected uh, pope, so the first Slav and the, uh, ever and the first non-Italian in over 450 years. Um, so this is really a revolutionary, uh, politically revolutionary uh, event uh, because what happens is that it puts the communist government of Poland in a really uh, tough spot, right? Uh, everyone in Poland, is, or just about everyone in Poland, is, is absolutely thrilled that a Pole has uh, become Pope. And uh, John Paul II uh, says, well, I, I want to come back and visit my home country sometime. How about next year, right? And um, the other thing to, to remember this, John Paul II was really, uh, I mean, I think there are ways in which, obviously, when he was pope, it wasn't appropriate for him to show this as much, but he really was an ardent Polish nationalist. He said his first mass as a priest on the tomb of a Polish king in the, in the crypt of um, 
Bavel Castle in Krakow. So this, that tells you something about the man, that that's, you know, and of course that's, uh, I'm not sure, well, that has to be when the communists are in power. So there's a, there's a certain symbolism um, uh, there. And so it puts the regime in a bind because he's, he's popular, he says he wants to come back, and they can't say no, right? Because if they, if they do, it's, a, it's an admission of weakness. And uh, so he comes, he ends up making several visits uh, in the uh, uh, 1980s. Uh, but the first one is probably the, um, the most important because millions of people turn out to uh, see him. And um, what happens then is that people realize that for the first time that everyone else hates the regime too and it's okay to say that, that you hate the regime because you realize that everyone else does. Uh, too. And by way of analogy in explaining this, uh, I, I, I'll just make another uh, movie uh, reference, uh, and that is a German film called The uh, Lives of Others, which won the Academy Award for uh, Best Foreign Film in 2007 or uh, thereabouts. And uh, if you haven't seen it, I highly, highly recommend it. There, you know, you could, there are a couple of uh, sex scenes you could fast forward through, but now I've warned you. So um, aside from that, it's a really wonderful film. And uh, what it, uh, it ba the basic premise of the story of this is this. It's East Germany in the early to mid 80s. And there's a uh, playwright and director who is uh, dating uh, the lead actress in his newest play. And uh, the communist minister of culture decides that he has uh, the hots for the actress. And so he tells the, the Stasi, the East German secret police, to bug the uh, director's apartment so that they can catch him saying something negative about the regime and then throw him in jail and then this guy can, can go after the girlfriend. And, uh, and so then what happens, it's basically then the story of the relationship of these people and then the Stasi agent who is in charge of uh, spying on them. And what the movie shows, I think, very powerfully is how uh, communism and the communist surveillance state makes uh, love and friendship uh, impossible because you cannot risk uh, be, basically, you know, if love is a complete gift of self to another, you can't make a complete gift of self to someone else when that person could be uh, persuaded somehow or other to, uh, to betray you. And uh, the actor who plays the Stasi agent actually had lived in East Germany. And um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's not little, maybe going too far with my tangent, but it's worthwhile, it's interesting, so I'm gonna run with it. The, uh, uh, so the Stasi, right, when the East German communist regime is collapsing, the Stasi knows the game is up, and in various places they try and burn all their, their records of agents that they had and things like this. And, uh, and, and there are, you know, a lot of times there are already protests going outside these Stasi offices, and so people will storm the, the uh, buildings and to prevent them from burning the records so they can find out uh, basically who all the bad guys are that they didn't know were bad guys in uh, East Germany. And um, so now there's an archive in 
uh, Berlin, I believe, where uh, they have all the old Stasi records, and you can find out if the Stasi had a file on you, and you can, you can go in and read it. And now, most people don't read their files because they're afraid to find out who among their friends and family members and coworkers betrayed them in ways you know, large and small. And the actor, again, who plays the Stasi agent in the movie actually went and read his file and found that all kinds of his colleagues in the acting profession had uh, reported on him to the regime and even his first wife had reported on him uh, to the regime. And so again, it just kind of highlights the, the, uh, the truth, I think, that this uh, director saw in making this film, that the communism and the surveillance state makes it really hard to, uh, to be friends with people and even to uh, love people. We mentioned Solzhenitsyn last week. You know, Solzhenitsyn's uh, wife, after he was uh, sent to, in one of his run-ins run with the authorities, his, his first wife ended up divorcing him because if you didn't stay divorced, or I'm sorry, if you stayed married to the person who was, who was sent to jail, it was assumed that you supported their, uh, their activities. And so he said, yeah, go ahead and divorce me. It'll be easier on you. Um, and then I believe, if I remember correctly, they got back together at a certain point when he was, uh, uh, he was released. So going back to Poland then in the early 19, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, right? Imagine this fear that must be in the minds of uh, people. And then when John Paul II comes to visit, everyone and their uncle turns out to see him. And so all of a sudden now, people feel more comfortable opening up to uh, their neighbors and their uh, friends and family members about what they really think about the regime. And then they can actually start organizing. So it's after this that uh, the uh, Solidarity Labor Union uh, is organized in 1980. And the beauty of Solidarity is that it's a union of uh, workers who are perpetually going on strike against what purports to be the workers' state. Right? So it brings out the, the inner contradiction of uh, communism, that it claims to be the workers' state or the dictatorship of the proletariat. And the people who uh, hate it the most, in this case, are the actual uh, workers. And uh, the leaders, of course, were uh, overwhelmingly uh, devout Catholics and uh, actively worked with the church hierarchy to weaken the regime. In the early 1980s, because of uh, solidarity strikes, the regime had become so weak that it seemed like there was a chance that Poland would be uh, invaded by uh, Warsaw Pact troops uh, to quell the unrest, right? And so in, all of a sudden in the early 80s, it's looking as though uh, Russian troops might come in from the Soviet Union and East German troops uh, might uh, come in uh, from East Germany, right, in a replay of 1939. And uh, the joke going around at the time was if the, you know, if the Germans and the Russians uh, invade us again, who do we shoot first? And the answer was first the Germans, then the Russians, business before pleasure. <laughs> so, so, uh, so what happens then is that a Polish general is made uh, prime minister, and the Soviets let him establish martial law for a brief period, well, brief as in a couple of years, 
in the early 1980s, and that's designed to prevent uh, foreign troops from coming in and potentially making the situation uh, even worse. Nevertheless, during this time, uh, thousands of people uh, were jailed, and a hundred or so were killed by the regime. Probably the most uh, famous was a priest named uh, Jerzy Popiusko. Uh, he was involved in uh, solidarity. He was spiritual director to uh, many of the people involved in uh, solidarity. And he was such a staunch anti-communist that American Radio Free Europe actually recorded his homilies and then broadcast them throughout the whole country. Right? So now it's not just the people in his congregation on Sunday morning or you know, daily mass who are hearing this, but the whole country potentially can hear these, uh, these anti-communist um, uh, homilies. Now, he was threatened by the security uh, services uh, and arrested, but then there were public protests, and so they released uh, him. Uh, they tried to stage a, a, a car accident, right, in which he would be standing on the street corner and, you know, an agent would drive a car around and another guy would push him, but he, it, it didn't work. He, he survived. And then finally, uh, a couple of guys uh, took him out to the woods someplace uh, and basically beat him to death and dumped him in a river. And there was so much public outcry at this that the regime ended up putting the agents who had done this on trial. So they put their own agents on trial and send them to prison. Okay. So he was beatified uh, then by Benedict XVI in uh, 2010. So throughout the 1980s, with covert help from, or not so covert help from the Pope, and uh, also uh, help from the United States, Solidarity put considerable pressure on the communist regime in Poland and uh, indirectly put a lot of pressure on the whole Soviet empire in Eastern Europe. And while this is going on, uh, the Soviets are fighting a war in Afghanistan and uh, losing. So when Mikhail Gorbachev becomes premier of the Soviet Union in 1985, uh, he realizes that the Soviet economy can no longer sustain uh, Soviet military commitments. Um, as uh, John le Carre put it in one of his novels, the Russian knight uh, was dying inside his armor. So on the outside, he looked very strong, but in the inside, he's, he's dying. And Gorbachev told the Politburo um, that he would not use military force to preserve of the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe. So strikes and protests against the regime in Poland combined with the liberalization taking place uh, in the Soviet Union under Gorbachev led to free elections in Poland in the sum summer of 1989, which were overwhelmingly uh, won by solidarity. Again, now it seems, in retrospect, it seems obvious that Sol Solidarity would win such an overwhelming victory, but pe people weren't actually sure. There was some fear that somehow the communists would actually win this uh, election. And you know, when, they, when the communists lost so overwhelmingly, again, it just kind of confirmed the fact that the regime had no legitimacy in the eyes of the people.
Hungary then was the next uh, country to liberalize. It dismantled its uh, border fence with uh, Austria, and then the result of that is that literally tens of thousands of uh, East Germans go down from East Germany to Hungary and then to Austria and then up to uh, West Germany because so many of them had uh, relatives in West Germany. And the East uh, German communist government was inclined to actually try to uh, cling to power. The guy who was in power at this time, uh, Eric Honecker, was the same guy who had been in charge of building the Berlin Wall in 1960. Uh, but the problem was Gorbachev wasn't going to uh, back him up, of course. And uh, so eventually he's uh, replaced, and uh, the Berlin Wall is uh, opened in the fall of 1989. So communism uh, by this point was uh, all but uh, vanquished in Eastern Europe. The Cold War was all but over and uh, John Paul II and the Catholic Church had done much to uh, bring this turn of events about. Now there's a lot more one could say about the Cold War and why it ended the way it did, but John Paul II gave a fitting post-mortem on communism in his encyclical Centesimus Annus, which was published in uh, 1991. John Paul II believed that communism fundamentally failed because it did not understand human nature. Man is created in the image and likeness of God, but communism is atheistic. So it is incapable of understanding uh, the truth about man, the most fundamental truth about man. So communism's rejection of God and inability to understand uh, man led communists to trample on the dignity of human beings uh, and finally delegitimated communism in the eyes of those uh, it ruled. And that, John Paul II believed, was what ultimately caused the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. Let us pray then that it causes the collapse of communism uh, where it still rules. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.